Welcome to another edition of the Membership World Podcast and I'm really, really pleased to have two guests this time, not always do we have two, but we've got uh, Sally Hardy and we've also got Alex Holmes from the Regional Studies Association and we're going to talk about their journey, their experience running a very successful association, but particularly around engagement and what sort of tools they've used successfully in the development and growth of their membership. So welcome to you both. Where are you both from, just so that our listeners can know where where, where are you based, Sally? So I'm based in uh, central Brighton and our office is um, part of the Innovation Centre at Sussex University. Great, super. And Alex, whereabouts are you based? I'm based in the slightly more rural Spenning, which is West Sussex as opposed to East Sussex. Lovely, lovely part of the world. Okay, so Sally, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about the RSA, its history and what you guys do. So the Regional Studies Association is a learned society. There are about 26,000 learned societies worldwide. It's quite a big sector that nobody knows about. Like no teenager ever lay in bed and thought, I'd like to be the chief exec of a learned society when I grow up. So we are a membership organisation. We have membership from all over the world and we focus in on regional policy and development. Our members are mostly academic geographers, economists, political scientists and planners. And they range from master's students right up to emeritus professors, literally globally. Wow. And I was looking at your website earlier. You've been around for a bit, haven't you, over 50 years? The Society was established in 1964, and I think I'm coming up to my 37th year. I don't think I'm part of the uh, gig economy. So what do the members get in terms of benefits, and what are you finding that they're valuing most? So we do quite regular membership surveys, and consistently over decades, what they've said they value is the network that they're introduced to. That's at all levels of membership, from student right the way through early and mid-career researchers. What they're looking for is those personal connections with people doing work that is similar or related to the work that they're doing. For the PhD students, everybody knows doing a PhD is a lonely business. They're partly looking for mates that are in the same boat as them and that understand For many of them, what they're looking for are career advancement opportunities. So early careers want to meet people in established career positions that have posts going within their departments. Everybody's looking for reliable and well-respected research partners. So really, it's about networking. Below that comes access to information. We publish a range of journals. We've got five at the moment and we're about to launch a sixth. We have a couple of online magazines and two book series, and we run a huge, uh, normally run a huge conference program, which is global. But again, that goes straight back to the network and the ability to find and connect with people that are interested in the same things as you. And have you found that you've changed your benefit offering in the last two years since the pandemic? I don't think it'll be a surprise to any of your listeners that in the first week of the UK lockdown, We pivoted all our activities from face-to-face to to online, and we were incredibly lucky in that just prior to lockdown, we'd bought an app from a company called RD Mobile, and we bought it because it was a membership app, and it would allow us to communicate directly with our members to their mobile phone. But actually, in lockdown, we discovered it had an online conference facility built within it. 
that we fell on and used within an inch of its life. And we're still completely dedicated to using it. So the events that we're planning now will be hybrid. So have a face-to-face element, but also an online part to the event. The reason that's been so fantastic for us is we've been able to grow our community into emerging economies, particularly, and also to younger researchers where they've not had the money to travel to exotic venues and come to expensive conferences. So it's been a way of growing the community in a very collegiate way. It's been welcomed by all parts of our membership. COVID has very few silver linings, but I think that is one. In fact, it's golden. And you're absolutely right, Sally. Many of the associations that I've been speaking to over the last uh, year or so have said education and global education has been one of the winners out of this, largely because of technology has enabled that to happen, not just because of delegates, but even because of speakers. You know, you would have paid probably quite expensive amounts of money to fly speakers to conferences and put them up. Well, you know, now they can deliver that content almost from their own offices in their own homes. Although they do moan if they have to get out of bed in the middle of the night to do it. I'm sure. And just before we move on to sort of Alex, have you found that the the age demographic has changed? Because a lot of associations, if I'm honest, have found it really difficult to embrace a younger audience that is more aligned with not necessarily, you know, professional bodies and trade associations. You were just saying at the end of that, some of that education has helped younger people in a way. Perhaps you could just elaborate a little bit more on that. Sure. Well, I think we were in a slightly unusual position before we went into the pandemic, because about a decade ago at a huge conference in America, we looked around the room and we were all going grey together. So we'd spent a decade trying to change the membership profile of our membership, and we concentrated on getting early careers involved. By early career, we mean both PhD students and master students through to people that are within five years of starting their research career. So it's quite a broad band. So we'd already built to a very significant number of members in that category. And of course, for them, managing the online app and the desktop version of that to participate in our global festivals was easy for them. They didn't have to learn nearly as much as some of the people in my generation. The real value for us was the geographical spread that it gave us. We went into communities where we've never had a profile before, and we've run two global e-festivals. And at the second one, we saw even more speakers coming from these newer geographies for us. Wow, that's a great piece of insight there, Sally. Thank you. So, Alex, what I'm hearing from Sally is all very positive, but I'm sure it hasn't always been like that. What are some of the challenges that you guys have faced running an association? Well, I think that being kind of responsible for quite a lot of the comms prior to the pandemic, during the pandemic, and I suppose we could say kind of after the pandemic, I think what the pandemic did for us is obviously with our focus on networking and interaction between people, with the globe suddenly in lockdown and nobody moving anywhere, that made communications even more important. So one of the challenges was actually reflecting not just the RSA and what we do, but actually the humanity behind the RSA. So we very carefully had to construct messages to our members and to the wider community about the fact that we were still here, 
we weren't running events, research grants. You know, if you can't go out and do research, it's a little bit harder to apply for those. But there were humans behind the corporate logo just readily there to support. It was tricky. And I think we did that quite successfully. But then, of course, as time progressed and, and, you know, everything became digital, for all the benefits and inclusivity of the digital communications and the digital interaction, there became the digital fatigue. And then on top of that, we've also got our time zone issues and geographic issues. So what you can say maybe in the UK to, you know, as a kind of structured letter or a, a form of communication might be interpreted completely differently somewhere across the world. So as digital fatigue has set in and people are a little bit, I suppose, more easily frustrated with the wrong message, I think that's probably the most diplomatic way of saying it. The wording of what we say and how we say it has become still human, but careful. So I think that that probably was the major challenge was fine, digital communication is the way forward, but speaking in many voices across many time zones to many people and keeping the same consistent message was particularly tricky. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually, because I remembered uh, doing a book launch, actually, funny enough, as a host, and it was in Asia. And one of the comments that my client actually said to me, sometimes these Asian audiences are more shy and you need to be very mindful of that. They just want to listen and take notes and stuff like that. So you're right, all these little salient points that unless you know about them, you could end up, um, well, I guess, offending somebody, couldn't you? And not realising it just just through through what you've said. And of course, tone of voice as well. It's a very good point. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So what about um, some of the tools? I mean, one good thing that has come out of the pandemic is this huge amount of technology, particularly when it comes to event management and payments and just generally communications. What sort of tools have you found useful? I think even before the pandemic, our CRM was the fundamental part of most probably all associations really heavily reliant on that for being able to target messages to different members to different member groups and bearing in mind that we've not only got our career stages but we've actually got our geographical locations as well so slightly different messages can be pointed towards the people who would be most interested in them and I think that's the important thing is it's not so much about the message that you're sending out. It's about the recipient that's getting it and getting the quality of that communication so that it's actually understood by the information you're trying to impart. So the CRM is right at the top. We use multiple social media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, WeChat, Instagram, because it's not just about plonking emails in people's inboxes. It's also about communicating with them outside of the email system, just the pure, this is just a message. It's, it's about sharing information. So some of the social media platforms we've used, less for promoting our own work, more about trying to build a coherence in the community. So engaging other people and networking other people on social networks, which is what it's all about. And being the hub, which leads me nicely to the hub, which is the RSA hub, our mobile app. And that has become, as Sally said, one of our most useful tools, not just for events, but for kind of allowing people to track the progress of the association and the updates of the association without sitting in front of a computer, without having to be proactive and going on our websites, because actually that's what websites are about, isn't it? It's not about somebody telling you to do it. You've actually got to want to do it yourself. So the wonderful thing about the app is that we can send push notifications 
and most people have got their mobile phone somewhere kind of close to them most of the time so those push notifications pop up and if it is of interest to that person they can then follow it through i found a quote by me because it was just such a wonderful quote uh, one of our members who is not from uk she said i've been using the rsa hub app on my phone for almost a year now almost every day It's my silent friend, my memory and my compass. I can safely navigate through countless extremely interesting events. It helps me prioritise my options and outline my professional and personal agenda. So that's what we wanted our website to be. But, you know, a website is a bit of a behemoth. It's got a huge amount of information that is not relevant to everyone. And the beauty about the mobile app is that actually people can just be targeted with stuff that is of interest to them. This podcast is sponsored by RD Mobile, providing events and member engagement solutions used by organizations worldwide. RD Mobile can help your organization deliver value at your next virtual or in-person event and throughout the year. Visit us at rdmobile.com to learn more. What I've found interesting is is that we're in the age now of we want personalised content. Something that used to really annoy me was when you've signed up to an event, like, I don't know, Christmas lunch or an event, and yet you still get the emails trying to sell you again. It's almost as though we're just sending it to the same database. It just almost suggests it's lazy communication and poor use of technology. And I think, you know, all of these things now people are noticing, aren't they? Because people have a perception of their association by the touch points in every way. So there's nothing worse for them to when they go into a website and they can't buy a ticket for an event or they can't interact in a way. But when they see really great technology working well for them, I think it's another reason why they're more likely to feel engaged with the association. Do you know what I mean? So it's not just the content that we all produce, it's the way in which we share it and communicate it, which I think is a great message to be talking about. So that's really good to hear. And anything else? Any other tools? Are you on YouTube at all? Are you on any videos? Have you thought about doing more of that sort of stuff? Yeah, our video archive is somewhere in the nearly 400s now. So we have a huge resource, our video archives, which, again, is another one of those resources that people would have to proactively seek out, except now they can access either through the website, through the members area or through the app as well. So we have workshops and sessions and lectures. So we do use YouTube rather than visiting our channel. We target those things into other applications where people can find them. Right. It's great. Almost like as a trailer to drive it through to your main hub, because that's really where you want them to be all of the time. Absolutely. That makes absolute sense. Have you got any sort of figures on how many people as a percentage of your total members are using the hub? It's about 56% at the last count, which was a couple of months back, actually. Well, that's extremely good. That's really high, actually. I mean, you know what it's like trying to get members to change the behaviour of something they've always been used to, which is email and stuff like that. It amazes me that some associations are still sending faxes and some, you know, because if they've got an older demographic, they still have to send out letters and invoices to serve that need. But uh, that's a very good percentage, I think, overall. And I guess you're wanting to continue to do that and drive that up as much as possible. Remind me again, how long have you had it? It came in, I think, 2018 in November. Then things all went a bit different very quickly. (laughs) 
it was launched at one of our conferences, but then it went a little bit quiet. And then we, we then recognised the kind of power behind it and pushed it. I mean, we've pushed it out with incentives and prizes. We constantly encourage people to download it, but it's not just for members. So anybody who comes to any of our events can download it and access things like programmes and recordings. I think these event apps will become a way of life before long. We're trying to change the behaviour. I mean, look at many of the exhibitions and events that we now go to. It's download the app. In fact, I was just looking at something the other day and said the app is the ticket to the event. So unless you have downloaded the app, you haven't got a ticket to the event. So that is a very smart way, I think, of actually driving people so that actually it becomes well, unless you've got the app, you can't get into the event, you know, um, which is good. Okay, so thank you for your contribution. It's been really, really good listening to you both. Um, I wanted to sort of finish with a few pearls of wisdom. I think, Sally, you're going to share three more high-level tips and advice for some of our listeners, aren't you? And then uh, you. Alex is going to do some as well. Yeah, so my high-level tips would be the first is to get the offer right. And that does mean segmenting your membership, um, sort of knowing who the avatars are and what they will value. Because unless you get that content right, you haven't really got a business. And that is quite difficult to work out. The needs of a mid-career researcher are rather different from a PhD student. And it is difficult, I think, to differentiate the needs. So that would be my first thing. And that involves a lot of talking to people and actually finding out. And that's how we know that networking is so highly valued across all of our categories of membership. The second thing I would say as a chief exec is to make sure that the team has the right tech. If you don't have the right tech, they're in trouble from the start. So the CRM has to work. We have one that we're able to customise continually as our membership needs change. And then the app speaks to the CRM, and that's absolutely critical. And essentially, that's got rid of any bad debt problems that we used to suffer from when people were paying with cheques or horrors with cash coming to the event. So no bad debt now because we make everybody pay either through the app or through the portal. So those are the first two things. And then I think then it is really getting the communications right. Um, so it is all the things that Alex has said about tailoring the message, treading very carefully, reviewing what you're sending out, ask somebody else to have a look at it. It's such a simple thing to say. So many times I've drafted something and sent it to Alex or one of our other colleagues and they've said, oh yeah, but you could say this. And usually they're pearls of wisdom that I take on. So those would be my three things. Get the membership offer right, get the tech right to support the staff delivering, and then think very carefully about the comms. Mm, great. Super. Thank you, Sally. And then from an operational point of view, Alex, what's your thoughts? I think it's consistency, really, of comms. There's various examples, but at the end of the day, your members are people, and it's really useful for those people to have a person at the end of their communication. So uh, model letters, you know, standard letters that go out to new members, which signpost them to, well, in this case, it's me as the person to come to for support for an actual real life person. So that's quite important. Obviously, regular engagement. We all love to say about surveys, but surveys take time. You don't want to bombard your members with surveys. So it's easier to sample a few members, just ask them questions and get responses back. And that's kind of real-time feedback that you can then use to tweak things, which leads me nicely to the third process, which is actually tweak things, you know, change them, update them, revitalize them. You know, if it doesn't work, don't do it. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's great. And then sort of lastly, Sally, what's on the horizon for the RSA? What's the big picture? Are you able to share us any sort of exciting things of change? We're moving now away from our global e-festival offer, which is what we've done over the last two years. I mean, we thought we were quite innovative with that because rather than running a three-day conference and having 20 parallel sessions, we recognised that the online world was rather different and we spread our events over three weeks and ran four sessions in competition with each other. We only charged the people who were coming to the events to give a paper or chair a session. We didn't charge people who just wanted to come and listen. That was how we were able to grow our influence. Moving forward, we're back to -to face-to-face meetings from September And so naturally, we're going to experiment with face-to-face only, where we think that that is important, where it's about networking, where we're doing something different in the meetings to the kind of chalk and talk presentation and questions that you can do online quite effectively. We're looking at hybrid, and I define hybrid as some sessions are available face-to-face and online, but not all. And then finally, we're looking at blended, where all of the sessions would be available and you try as hard as you can to offer the same experience and engagement to people who are online as to the people who are in the room. Really difficult to do well. And you need absolutely bomb-proof tech in your conference venue for that. And that is a challenge. And how you do that imaginatively and also include online engagement for virtual only attendees. Yeah, it is going to be a challenge, but it is going to be interesting. At least it's not boring. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both today. And thank you so much for your time on the Membership World podcast. That's it for another edition of the Membership World podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show and give me your feedback. Hello at membershipworld.co.uk or you can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. We can also ask me a question. And lastly, if you do feel like it, please do give us a five-star rating as it makes a big difference. Thanks as always to my producer, Neil Whiteside from Freedom One. And until next time, from me, Gordon Glenister, it's bye for now.